0: Today's episode is brought to you by E.J. Koh's much-anticipated debut novel, The Liberators, an elegantly wrought family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. Spanning two continents and four generations, The Liberators exquisitely captures two Korean families, forever changed, by fateful decisions made in love and war, says Tyree Jones. Spare, beautiful, and richly layered, The Liberators is dazzling, adds Ed Park. You won't know what hit you until the final perfect image. The Liberators is available now from Tin House. I'm unusually excited to share today's conversation, not only because of Sophia Samatar's Return to Between the Covers, or Kate Zambrino's long-overdue first appearance on the show, but also because this is only the second time ever I've had a collaborative pair on the show before. The first was about a decade ago, Lainey Zumas and Luca De Piero, for their novel in 64 cards called A Wooden Leg, a collaboration of image and text, Of writer and visual artist, and a collaboration with chance and happenstance with a quote unquote book that really had no fixed order. And so our conversation became one about constraint based writing and non normative forms of storytelling. Today's conversation's concerns are much different, I think, as both our guests today are writers, each writers with distinct styles who are often working in different genres, who are now writing a book together through the shared voice or the shared point of view of what they call the Committee to Investigate the Atmosphere. Their book is about the ever-elusive and hard-to-define phenomenon of tone in literature, something that despite its difficulty to name may be the very thing that defines our reading experience, even perhaps the reason why we seek out certain writers in certain books. But their investigation of tone also, by extension, becomes an investigation of the relational, the communal, the collective, the collaborative. And thus, it reflects back on the nature of their own collaboration and how, from their point of view, All writing is collaborative and collective. If you don't normally check out the bookshop associated with each episode, this would be the week to start, as it is the largest one yet, given how much Tone engages with and is indebted to so many other books. But there are two books in specific that today's conversation on Tone uses to enrich our understanding of it. They're both collaborative books in and of themselves, both books written by two people as one voice. The Undercommons, Fugitive Planning and Black Study by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney, and The Hundreds by Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart. For the bonus audio archive, Kate and Sophia extend the spirit of their book and our conversation into a set of alternating readings by them, a call and response between Kate and Sophia, where Kate talks about and introduces and then reads from a given work, whether something by Renee Gladman or Banu Kapil or others, and Sophia responds to Kate with a reading of her own, from everyone from Nella Larson to Bustos Mech the shared pseudonym of Jorge Luis Borges and Adolfo Boy Casares, when they wrote together, collectively, as if one. This almost becomes an episode in and of itself. It's over 40 minutes long and joins an ever-growing, giant archive of supplemental material. From a late-night reading of favorite works by Banu Kapil to a writing exercise by Lucy Ives, to long-form conversations with translators, and much more. The bonus audio is only one possible thing to choose from when you join the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. There are many other things, from the Tin House Early Reader subscription, to rare collectibles from past guests, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. And every supporter, at any level, receives the supplementary resources with each episode, with everything I discovered and used to prepare for the conversation, the many things referenced during it, and suggestions of where to explore once you're done listening, and which this time, with today's resource email to supporters, this time includes surprise music, music that is missing from today's episode something that will make sense once you've listened to the conversation. And every listener supporter can join our collective brainstorm of who to invite next on the show. You can check this all out and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with Kate Zambrino and Sophia Samatar. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. One of today's two guests, Sophia Samatar, was first on the show seven years ago now to talk about her second novel, The Winged Histories, a book that both interrogates and celebrates the genre of high fantasy. Since then, Samatar has published her story collection, Tender, and the collaborative book with her brother, the visual artist Del Samatar, Monster Portraits, a finalist for the Calvino Prize. And most recently, she published her memoir, The White Mosque, which interweaves the story of Mennonite and Muslim encounter in Central Asia in the 19th century with her own trip to Uzbekistan and her own Somali, Muslim, and Swiss German Mennonite heritage. A polyvocal work of memoir, history, and travel writing. The White Mosque received the Bernard J. Brommel Award for Biography and Memoir and was a finalist for the PEN Jean Stein Award. Samatar's essays, fiction, and criticism have appeared everywhere from Strange Horizons and Uncanny Magazine to The New Inquiry, Conjunctions, and The White Review, and her work has been anthologized in The Best American, Science Fiction and Fantasy, and translated into 11 languages. She holds a Ph.D. in African Languages and Literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she studied modern Arabic literature, and she teaches African literature, Arabic literature, and speculative fiction at James Madison University, where she is Roop Distinguished Professor of English. For our second guest, Kate Zambrino, this is her first appearance on Between the Covers, but hopefully not the last. Kate Sembrino is author of many books of fiction and nonfiction, including Green Girl, Heroines, Book of Mutter*, Screen Tests, and Drifts. And most recently, she's the author of a study of Hervé Guibert, To Write As If Already Dead, and The Lightroom, A Meditation on Art and Care, on caretaking as mothering, as public health, as the public commons, as shared green spaces a book of which Nobel Prize winner Annie Erno says, Kate Sembrino has invented a new form. It is a kind of absolute present, real life captured in close-up. And Sabrina Oramark adds, the Lightroom is a miracle, a wooden box with a golden clasp filled with the specimens of all our most precious disappearing days. Sambrino's writing has appeared everywhere from the New Yorker to Granta to the Paris Review and been translated into seven languages. Sembrino is a 2021 Guggenheim Fellow in nonfiction and chair in environmental writing at Sarah Lawrence College and teaches graduate nonfiction at Columbia. They are both here to talk about their latest project, the collaboratively written book Tone out from Columbia University Press a book written together but with one voice or point of view called The Committee to Investigate the Atmosphere. Jackie Wang, author of Carceral Capitalism and The Sunflower, Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void, calls Tone a gorgeous inventory of Baroque intensities, spooked consciousnesses, vibrational affectivities and shifting moods written in and through precarity's duration. The committee has convened to remind us, in shimmering and intricate prose, that all thinking is collective thinking. In the doorway of thought, a we steps into the weather of literature. Two-time Between the Covers guest, Christina Rivera Garza adds, just as the world laments the apparent lack of insightful literary criticism, as well as the dwindling number of venues that support it, here comes the dazzling committee to investigate the atmosphere with a piece of criticism like no other. Writing collaboratively and in luscious, piercing dialogue with students and peers, Kate Zambrino and Sophia Samatar set out to interrogate the question of tone from every angle imaginable, what it is or might be, how it wraps around the human and non-human, how it affects work and space, rooting readers in territories through specific prepositions, why it has proclivity for windows and community, reading thickly and in context, a to-die-for selection of contemporary, creative, and theoretical works, including lo and behold, texts and translation. The committee reminds us, that often we read books less for plot, character, or setting, and more for the quality of atmosphere, quite simply and quite momentously, to breathe that air again. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sophia Samatar and Kate Zambrino.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be back. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice to be here.
2: It's nice to be here with Sophia, to be here together.
0: Yeah. This is only my second, as I was telling you, my second time having two guests the last time. Uh, was over a decade ago. Prior to reading Tone, I, I hadn't thought a great deal about what Tone was, and I sort of had defaulted in my mind to the notion that it had to do with voice, that it was a quality of voice. And your book almost immediately, and then I think consistently throughout, makes a convincing case that it's something else, something shared or in between or relational or atmospheric. And definitely something collective and communal rather than a quality of an individual. And you quote at one point Fred Moten, who said, I always thought that the voice was meant to indicate a kind of genuine, authentic, absolute individuation, which struck me as A, undesirable, and B, impossible. Whereas the sound was really within the midst of this intense engagement with everything, with all the noise that you've ever heard you struggle somehow to make a difference so to speak within that noise and that difference isn't necessarily about you as an individual it's much more simply about trying to augment and to differentiate what's around you and that's what sound is for me S- so before we talk about tone in a collective sense i guess i wanted to stay one moment with my false notion of voice or perhaps Moton's truer notion of sound and ask you a couple questions about how you went about writing this together. My questions are both conceptual or philosophical and practical and logistical, for one. I'm curious if you were aiming for a third voice or a third sound that was somehow both of you and neither of you, or whether you wanted to allow a different musical syntax when each of you wrote. Kate, you had mentioned that. One influence for the book was another collaboratively written book, The Hundreds, by Lauren Berlant and Kathleen Stewart. And in a public event that they had about that book, they said that collaboration is a meeting of minds that don't match. Yet my reading experience is one where the sound feels like it has a continuity. And when the two of you say in the book, in one voice, thus begins the body of text, our body, our body, it feels like you might have aimed for a certain unison of sound. So if you indeed were looking for a shared third space, how did you or didn't you divide the work? How did you edit each other if you did? Um, Were you editing each other's sentences toward a third sort of sound? Or is there some other methodology entirely that that you went about creating this together?
2: I want to think about just... First, this idea that voice is individual or that when we read literature, we read an individual. And I think that's so much within how we view, I mean, the novel now, how we view literature now is about everything as being the author and the individual. And I think that is so much the cult of capitalism influencing how we think about reading and literature. And I think one of the impulses in general behind this project was not to deconstruct voice. Um, I still think voice is important in writing, but to think about literature as collaborative. By its essence, literature is a collective feeling. It is a collaborative feeling especially when you're dealing with translated literature, you're dealing with many voices and something like what Fred Moten calls an ensemble tone. So I think we're playfully desiring collaboration that's more formal than the collaboration we already felt as readers and writers with each other and with other readers and writers so this idea of the voice as being individual, um, really inspired by Moten and Harney and Berlant and Stewart, I think that was what we were playfully and formally trying to deconstruct. That literature isn't already an ensemble thing. That's not already a communal thing. And when we're reading, we have our voice, we have the narrator voice, And then we have possibly a translated voice. There's already so many, Mm. there's already so many voices. I just want to start with that.
1: And I think another way to think about it is where does, okay, let's say we are talking about voice. That's, you know, let's go with individual voice. Where does it come from? Mm. It comes from other voices. Mm -hmm. It comes Mm -hmm. from literature. Nobody's voice is like, it, and and I think that's why, you know, in that wonderful Moten quote about sound, it, that, that, you know, his statement recognizes that you're not, there's nothing that that originated with you. You arrive into sound, you arrive into the midst of sound, sound is already there. And then what the individual is doing is, is like, you know, playing with that. And how can I insert myself into this sound? And also being like infected by it, contaminated by mm-hmm. it. So that for me, I find, you know, my writing absolutely shifts depending on what I'm reading. And I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that that's not just me. So mm-hmm. when you talk about, you know, the, the question, David, about, you know, the committee, the committee in tone, and is is the committee a combination of voices? Is the committee a third thing? I think that the the voice of the committee comes from the two of us being in, inspired deeply inspired by each other so that there's a kind of you know a, a contamination or a cross-fertilization that is happening between our voices throughout the text mm. and that i think is what develops what is a third thing which is the voice of the text i mean when we when we had our launch event over the weekend for the book that was the first time I realized that part of what's very strange in talking about this book, as opposed to anything else I've written, is that I feel like in in a sense it is written by this third kind of mixed entity, which is neither Kate nor me, but is kind of the sound that arises as we, as we work together.
2: I'll even take that and add to that that the committee is not just us, Sophia Samatar and Kate Zambrino. The committee is a swarm of others, a contamination of other voices who are also reading the text. So already the committee is not just us. We are just, there are all these other anonymous users as we joke. So there's, you know, there's already, already there's a plurality And and I think the fact is, Sophia and I are always inspired by other voices when we're writing. We're always inspired by reading. We're readers first and foremost. And so, so much for both of us um, in our separate and then now communal practices is about the act of translation. So there are so many voices in this text. There's so, I mean, you know, you just read one, Fred Moten, who is... know we are the first the first stage I know I know you want to get at the how but the first stage was collecting I think mostly Fred Moten and then also Moten and Harney quotes and putting like rubbing them together rubbing them together in a space together and thinking you know what is this what is what is this friction of rubbing these quotes together um, and what what is that what is that bringing up? So already, it's not us at all in this. There's the committee of our elective affinities, and then also the re- The reader is always there. The plurality is always there, and to us, that is that contamination. As Sophia is saying, is beautiful, beautiful. It's sacred.
0: It reminds me that there are these moments in the second half of the book that are very particular, that you can tell that they're from one of your pasts or one of your childhoods, not the other. But the sound doesn't differentiate or split. It's still the committee. We don't know, if we don't know you, whose memory it is. It's being spoken as if it's both of your memories or the committee's memory. There's That, that also happens in the hundreds um, with lines like, my sister Peg remembers that our mother made us get short haircuts. We don't know if that's Berlant or Stewart. Um, it feels like that's doing something. It's making something wobble or pointing at an instability, perhaps, um, maybe about self or about voice, because it never sort of tips its hand to wh- where's the origin of this. Maybe there's the, it, it's skeptical to the question of origin.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of skepticism toward origin, Which I I think is part of our interest in works in translation, because when you read in translation, you you kind of foreground the question of origins in a way that like sort of bursts everything open and pulls everything apart. It makes it very clear that, you know, you can't establish that single origin for anything. Mm. I did want to go back also to the question that you asked about, did we edit each other's sentences? Yeah. Because the answer is no.
0: Okay. That's remarkable, I think. I mean, given that it feels so smooth, the the voice of the committee feels smooth to me.
2: I think that with the hundreds, one of the, and I think that there are so many Lauren Berlant feelings in tone. I think that we started thinking about it. If If my time, time is being really confused, but I think it was around the time that they died, and they were always like a mentor to me on just in terms of their work, but also I I actually did study with Lauren Berlant like when I was a completely different person a very long time ago, so I think there was that sense of an elegy and a communication in it, and we were so drawn to the 100s. What is going on there? What is it like for two eyes to reside next to each other? And then what is it like when we happens, when there's a we? This idea of speculative practices as being a plurality, unlike the undercommons, which kind of is, is subsumed under a we, the hundreds invites more friction. And I would say the the beauty for me is less the smoothness, which we always say, smoothness is so professional and polished, right? Everything being smooth. But it's the friction, it's the irritation, it's the fact that we are rubbing next to each other and trying to see what happens. What is that irritation or that friction of collaboration? Like to me, that that interests me. And there is a mysterious quality to the 100s that is opaque. And I think these this idea of the I and the opacity of it, or the we and the opacity of it, that trickiness, I think we were both drawn to.
1: Very much so. It's very playful. I mean, when we, mm-hmm. when we started, I was teaching, and I think the, the beginning of the book, it makes this clear that somebody was teaching Nell Larson's quicksand mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in a class. And I was teaching it in a graduate seminar, and Kate was like, oh, I love that book. I want to read that book with you. And we started reading it together and we started writing back and forth about it so much that we eventually had to shift that conversation out of our email and into a Google doc, which eventually, you know, became this book as we continued to read other texts together. And I love that idea of friction because there's so much in it because friction you know, it is the rubbing together. It also creates heat. It generates energy. And it also makes a sound, you know, friction makes a sound. So I think that's a wonderful description of what happened as we began writing together and then playing with this idea of the committee to investigate atmosphere. There's also a friction there between the sort of rogue approach to genre that we had where we really didn't decide what genre it was or think about what genre it was there's a friction between that and the ordinary or conventional ways about writing about literature within an academic context and so the fact that this book is written by people who are working in academic institutions but is absolutely you know chafing against the the co- mo- more common academic ways of writing about literature, I think that there's an impo- important friction there also, and that play is absolutely, you know, fundamental to that.
0: What you just said, Sophia, is something that I really love about the book, is that, you know, each of these chapters approaching tone in a different way, and no matter how philosophical or conceptual that investigation becomes, we're always also situated in your lives. We were told how much time has passed since you last talked, or a given chapter might be situated in a classroom with your students with a given set of questions you might have related to tone and a given text. They're present with you in sort of an open space with your students within the book. So you're gathering around a book within the book together in an academic setting as one possible iteration of a chapter and despite the book having the voice of a committee the tone created by the committee's voice doesn't really feel top down or pedagogical because of this i think because we're in sort of a place of inquiry we're in the middle of things and it makes me think of the interview at the back of the Undercommons where harney says that he uses repetition to show that he's playing with something rather than finished with it to indicate that they're rehearsing and that you might as well pick up an instrument too, which I really love. And I feel like that applies to tone. And I wondered if maybe we could just spend another moment with the chapter fog or a gradual accumulation, which is where we find ourselves picking up an instrument with you, with your students around passages of the Harlem Renaissance novelist, Nella Larson's Quicksand, which you've just mentioned, and you ask them about the tone of the passage, and they agree that it is gray or a gradual accumulation or an ominous fog, and you ask where does the tone reside and what are its signs, and and your students or some of them point to clouds and storms, which feels maybe too obvious or reductive when you guys contemplate that as a reason for grayness and you go on to think about the absence of images in the passage and the absence of anything indicating life and maybe that absence is the grayness but i guess in a larger sense if we were to step back from those questions is there a reason why we open the book with quicksand is a good place to begin around tone is it simply because in a way, that is the origin story for you moving to a Google Doc together. As you have these great email threads around your shared love of the book, or is, is there more to why we might enter the this multifaceted uh, investigation starting here, starting with Larson's book?
2: I just want to um, say that I think actually this is the playfulness. I think one of the passages you just read you attributed to Sophia, but I'm not sure who wrote it actually right yeah,
1: that's great. <laughs> either this
2: happens to me all I the time we assume that it's sophia but even though it was sophia actually teaching quicksand it's not totally clear like we are we're writing all of those quicksand passages together so it's kind of like it becomes a speculative practice the teaching of quicksand where we we both take on the role of the teacher quicksand is also a novel, it's a novel of so much. Sophia can speak about this like initial irritation that led to us realizing that there was so much, so many sparks and friction for us to write through. But, you know, Nella Larson was, you know, um, Helga Crane is a teacher. Helga Crane is a teacher who is alienated from teaching and alienated from her students, alienated from her campus, and, and awash with ambient racism and patriarchy. And most of the works we write about in tone, deal with alienation, melancholy, and exhaustion from academia. Mm. If, if not all of the works, mem- you know, Yoko Tawada's Memoirs of a Polar Bear, translated by Susan Bernofsky, Aika Geisler's Seasonal Associate, translated by Katie Derbyshire, W. Zabald's Rings of Saturn and Quicksand. So there's this desire for us, I think, following Moten and Harney to develop a course of study, as they have said, like playing music. There's that whole quote from Fred Moten that we quote, like a study can be, you know, dancing together, talking together, reading together, just being together. We wanted to develop a course of study that somehow felt good. That, that answered back to the alienation we felt in different ways with the idea of academic study or the idea of like the oppression of a classroom. And I think the collaborative vibe that we felt with our students throughout this and the fact that we view the students as collaborators in this is part of, I think, both of our desire for teaching to feel playful, experimental, and a course of study. And so I think this work is just part of that. But also the works that we read are, you know, deal with that alienation and that exhaustion. And we try to answer that back with with good feeling.
1: Yeah, and a, and a huge part of the good feeling comes from the collaboration. And we've spoken together about how different it is publishing a collaborative work and how much like more excited we were about tone being published than works that we've written with just our own name on the cover you know how good it feels to work together to be together and to acknowledge that as something that is valid rather than having to reduce everything down to a single name when you ask like why why begin with Nella larson was it Was it just, you know, kind of the accident of the way things happen to happen? I guess I have sort of two answers to that. Um, One of them is that I'm not, I'm not sure that there's anything so near or simple about what just happened. I think that there, there can be something very powerful about a work that that is of its time that is tied to its time and that acknowledges you know the passage of time and the way things did actually happen that's sort of a move away from you know a universal like this is for all you know this is something that i've written that is for all time and therefore i should i should you know maybe maybe there's something you know not quite high or important enough about you know, the daily, the, the everyday, you know, kind of ordinary life. And so I guess I would push against that a little bit and be like, no, it's a, you know, there's something very amazing about acknowledging those those moments of time and sort of going with that in a work of theory. The other the other answer that I have to that question is that reading Nella Larson's Quicksand alongside Xian Nai's chapter on irritation in ugly feelings in which she writes about quicksand and and writes about irritation as the kind of organizing tone of that novel. It was a strange experience, you know, reading Nye's chapter on quicksand alongside the novel, because in Ugly Feelings, we have this argument that there is a global irritation, which also becomes the irritation of readers with Helga Crane, the main character because she is so like, she doesn't really say what she feels and she like wanders from place to place. And it's like, what's wrong with her? And that this actually becomes irritating for readers. And Kate and I did not have that experience reading this book. I indeed was irritated. I'm irritated with everybody in that book, except Helga Crane. She's the only character that I understand. And I think everybody else is kind of, you know, they they irritate me. And so This raises a very interesting question about tone, which is sort of like, is the blue that I'm seeing the same as the blue that you're seeing (laughs) sort of question. And that seems to call for collaboration in a very direct way. Like it seems almost silly to go and write a book about tone by yourself without anybody to, to kind of interact with and bounce things off of and sort of involve another perspective in your talking about tone, because otherwise you could be just sort of in a random chamber by yourself and you, you can't tell how it relates to what anybody else is thinking. So because that experience of reading those texts seemed to really call for collaboration, I think that's also part of the reason that that chapter becomes, that it becomes the first chapter.
2: And I also think that Noel Larson was such an important writer for both of us quicksand is such a work of ugly feelings it is such a work of tremendous feeling and i think this distance between how she was reviewed at the time or how she can be read in some ways just induced this powerful contradictory feeling for us it was like this powerful thing that we felt we had to write into and i think with literary criticism It has to be a work that feels so, so open and so powerful that you actually feel like you have to, you have to write through it. There was, you know, heroines. I I don't know if I've really framed this to Sophia before, but, you know, Nella Larson was supposed to be in heroines. I did tons of Nella Larson research and I just, I, I felt like I needed to know more about her life, like her fascinating life, like everything that. Happened to her as a, you know, a librarian and a writer in the Harlem Renaissance and the plagiarism scandal. So she was always like this writer for me that I hadn't written about, who I had wanted to write about. And, and I think, you know, with the work that I write about in heroines, these modernist works by Annika Van or Jean Reese or Jane Bowles. They are these incredibly powerful works of intense sensitivity and feeling, which were often, you know, viewed as hysterical or viewed as rubbing people the wrong way. So to think about how can we actually theorize a work where irritation or annoyance within a narrator is actually a form of praxis that a that a narrator who is beginning to actually react to an environment that's paralyzing and literally insane and insanity making, but is also a passive narrator in this, you know, these these works of this time have such an incredible potency. And I think quicksand also in how it deals with class and Blackness, all these forms of alienation, femininity. I mean, it's just such, it's such an incredibly powerful text. And I think for both of us, we felt it had not maybe be, been read as with as much love as it should be
0: well even even already today in our conversation but i also think even already in the first chapter of tone tone doesn't become more clear it becomes more mysterious or it multiplies in in meanings right away you wonder if it's a mood or a form of shared feeling you think of it as a sound a tone that is auditory but also even here as a skin tone, um, quoting Christina Sharp, who writes of slavery as atmospheric density and anti-blackness as climate or weather. And I I like how you connect the notion of skin tone, of something covering a surface and thus rendering it opaque, and then connecting that to the right to opacity, as it manifests in Larson's book. And as you just mentioned, Kate, the notion of passivity as a form of resistance. Um, we have a question for you from someone else that doesn't relate to these questions of skin tone, but I'm placing it here because I feel like it has some loose affinities with this chapter, this being a question about clouds, like the clouds in the passage in quicksand. But in this case about the cloud, that is the shared space on the internet, a space of meeting and in your case, collaboration. And also this questioner's ambivalence to the cloud, which reminds me a little of the refusal of Helga Crane. Otherwise, it's entirely its own thing. The question is from Barbara Browning, who people will recognize as the ukulele player in the outro for the show for many years, up until a couple episodes ago. And her blurb for this book was even cloud-centric, so I'm going to read her blurb first. In this subtle, haunting study, the committee investigates what it means to write both of and on the cloud. Sophia Samitar and Kate Sembrino gave themselves over to the nebulous space of a collective reading and writing practice, seeking neither plot nor character, but rather the most indefinable of literary qualities, tone. Joining them there is eerily calming. Someone else has entered the chat. And so here we are. After three years of constant, anxious reminders that we are breathing each other's air, try as we might to remain particular, there is something immensely gratifying about surrendering to this pronoun of our plural historical intimacy. I'm also just going to say that in addition to the question Barbara asks, she also plays a ukulele cover for us
3: amazing of
0: Joni Mitchell's both sides now which I'm gonna play (laughs) which I'm gonna play to the guests but due to you know copyright or licensing or whatever that would involve it's not going to be on the show itself so you're just gonna have to imagine after Barbara's question that you've heard a ukulele rendition of Joni Mitchell afterwards which they will have heard so here here here's Barbara's question (laughs) and then her performance
4: Kate and Sophia, you know how much I loved reading your book. And when David asked me to ask you a question, the first thing that came to mind was about your process. You did something that I find very difficult myself, which is to say, I I love collaborative writing, but I've never done it on the cloud. So unable to formulate a very coherent question about that, I resorted to what I often resort to, which was, well, maybe I'll make a ukulele cover. And then I thought, well, which song? The first thing I thought of was the Rolling Stones. Hey, hey, you, you get off of my cloud. Then I thought maybe that was a little brutal. So I thought of Jimi Hendrix, Little Wing. Well, she's walking through the clouds with a circus mind that's running wild. And then finally I came to probably too predictably the song that really seems to encapsulate my own ambivalence about the cloud, Uh, Joni Mitchell, Both Sides Now. And that's what I ended up making for you. But I guess if I'm to phrase this as a question, it would be around that question of ambivalence and whether any of those songs, uh, whether Jimmy's sort of fantastical, playful version, the Rolling Stone's aggressive version, or... Joni's ambivalence, which of those would speak to you and your experience of that process?
1: That was so beautiful. I'm so sad that not everybody is hearing what we just heard.
0: It's amazing, isn't it?
1: Is there any more joyous
2: writer right now than joyous and mischievous writer right now than Barbara Browning hi Barbara I feel I wish I wish Barbara I wish it was like a call-in so we could actually talk to the people calling in I hadn't been in touch with Barbara Browning for a while we did an event when I'm trying to reach you came out and heroines came out it was um One of those like panel things that had like that panel feeling to it, that lonely panel feeling where nothing is really said. You wish more was said, but she, she knitted, like she knitted booties when Leo was born and sent them to me. But I was really happy to be back in touch with Barbara Browning and to be able to send her tone because then she sent me this amazing story she wrote, which is partially inspired by her deep friendship with Lauren Berlant. And I think that you know, her work deals so much with collaboration and playfulness, but it's true. It's like, it's like Maura Davies' postcards, this idea of like in the mail, like the playfulness is in the mail, like mail art or like, you know, recording ukulele covers. It is different than operating only through technology in some ways.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I think the question, this great question about, you know, what's your what's your orientation toward the cloud? Is it the mm-hmm. aggressive one? Is it the fantastical one? Is it the ambivalent one? It definitely is a question that draws one toward the ambivalent one because that yeah. enables you to say, well, it is fantastical and it is aggressive. It is, it is all of those things. I have thought quite a bit about you know these these uses of technology especially since covid i think kate and i both have as we both i've been thinking sort of i was it. just
2: thinking about your writing about zoom
1: boxes the writing about zoom sophia yes yes i was thinking about that too a piece that i wrote called on dwelling that that was thinking about thinking about traveling about not traveling about not flying specifically and about how that changes experiences of being with others Um, Mm and if you as I am are not really flying anymore then you know you use the technology to do these meetings and and I'm certainly ambivalent about it I think because I want I want the error I want the mistakes I want the randomness that often happens when people are together where the chattiness the chattiness and just yeah. like unplanned shit like things that yeah that fell or like you're going up to the podium and you and you slip or like and there's like there's a giggle from the audience but it's a warm giggle and it's like oh you know oops whereas in a the zoom box situation i have i have felt that any kind of accident or anything that goes wrong is seen as like something really bad it's like oh we are so sorry we are having technical difficulties whereas right. in Person, if you like, knock your water glass over onto your papers. Is there's a much more sympathetic, like, oh, we're in the world of objects, and like things happen. The idea that we are now in this technological space that we are supposed to have control of, and if you don't, it's like there's something wrong with you that you couldn't manage these things that are created to take all the errors out and to give you like this this kind of smooth experience of of watching somebody's face on a screen. I'm I'm definitely interested in pushing against that. I mean this is why when
2: I teach even over Zoom, which I try not to so much anymore, but we also are expected to constantly now, we're expected to be always working even if we, you know, are not traveling, but I always allow for chattiness. Like I've always I always let everyone just like chat and gossip because I think that's such an important thing to let students just talk to each other as opposed to this hierarchical model of me talking at them. This is, this is mm-hmm. Barbara, this is a subject that Sophia and I talk about a lot. We both are like most people very concerned about climate change. We've both made different kind of commitments to not travel right now for various reasons. And so we're thinking like, is this what we're left with is the Zoom box right? Or is this what we're left with? Are these more smooth, again, for me, smoothness as something that's too polished or professional, like these smooth yeah. modes of communication. But I do think there is possible, like, you know, when I had Banu Kapil do a Zoom lecture on the animal at Sarah Lawrence, when I did my year-long lecture at the animal, which was over Zoom the entire year, the only reason I was asked to teach a literature lecture It's because they needed someone to do it. I was not a literature scholar, but it could be over Zoom. So there was no space on campus. There was no room. Like there was no like lecture hall to do it in. So it did over Zoom and there were so many glitches. There were so many accidents, but like Bonu like did some like marvelously hilarious performative things with the Zoom box where it did, like I think there is space for, for play. With these with these forms. And I think you know, it's important to know that and to think about the fact that Banu, Sophia, and I and others met online.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And the the comment box, the comment box was its own performative space. So we are used to thinking of the internet as something to fuck with. And thinking of it as someone, something that can I not say that? (laughs)
0: No, you can 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 totally say that.
2: I could have said that in a lot, lot, (laughs) lot more uh, uh, articulate way. But thinking of that, that space is performative and not professional and not that everything has to be smooth and that there can be an incredible intimacy achieved through commenting on a blog or, or having a blog post and that sense of scale and intimacy and thinking about writing for others, we, we did online in our community together in our own other various communities. So this is a longing for the blog, you know, which Banu and I have also spoken to each other about, a longing for the weirdness of the blog, a longing for something to feel amateur, ongoing, performative, And I think we carried that energy and that longing for mistake and for accident into the Google Docs with each other. So I think that was, it was a way to say, and I think, you know, this is what many of us are still asking, like how can it feel like a blog, right? Or how can it feel like a comment box? Or how can it feel? Because the thing is we were writing to each other. We were read it was incredibly intimate and incredibly playful. And so I think tone is, was a natural extension of that. And I I just wanna say one other thing is that I'm, you know, when we're dealing with people who are overworked and who are um, often, you know, precarious, precarity comes in a lot in tone, you have Zoom possibly for a meeting space, you have, Google Docs, possibly. like These are organizing tools now and they're not great and maybe we would prefer in person but it's what we have. So this technology Mm -hmm. also enables people to collaborate together and to be collective. So these are also, they're tools of capitalism that we should be deeply suspect from and we're alienated from but they're also tools of collectivity.
0: I'm going to take these things that you've just raised, I think it's a perfect segue into bringing us back to the ways you quote unquote fuck with the academic in this book. And I'm going to sort of make a collaborative question monster Um, (laughs) because you start the book tone with a framing that is academic in its most broadest strokes, even though each of the sections are sort of, Undermining it at the same time. We start with an abstract and then a page of keywords affect, ecology, collectivity, vibration, architecture, fog, dust, rot, snow, light, distance, echo, pressure, gesture, and blur. And that is followed by a significance statement. And you're framing the book with the structure of academic papers and yet very obviously not presenting something academic not just because you aren't putting forth and proving an argument or that much of this is actually set in a classroom or the setting of your lives as overworked, underpaid, and perhaps undervalued teachers and mothers exploited under capitalism, but using the voice of the committee also and opening with an abstract and a significant statement sort of places us in a miasm of academia while at the same time taking academic language and the expectations we have for it outside of its normal context. And I think of the two collaborative works we've been touching upon, The Undercommons and The Hundreds, and how they both share this in different ways, how Moten and Harney said when they were on the Millennials Are Killing Capitalism podcast about The Undercommons, that they wanted to write a book about study not about the university, to rescue black life from black study, that the university has always been a place to regulate thought, not liberate it. And Berlant and Stewart say about the hundreds that they wanted to resist the academic tendency toward categorization and putting things in boxes, that they wanted to abandon the tone expected in academic writing. And Berlant and Stewart, they're asked, does this book produce knowledge? And they say it produces inspiration. And they argue that affect makes worlds. So in light of this miasm that I've created, I'm going to put together two questions from two different people, and I'm going to play them back-to-back as a sort of double-voiced collaborative question. The first one is from one of the co-hosts of the literary podcast, One Bright Book, Francis Evangelista. It's a podcast that actually mentioned Tone in an earlier episode this year for their most anticipated books of 2023. So here is Frances' part of the double question.
5: Thank you, David, for the opportunity to pop in and ask a question today. I am a huge fan of of the work of both Sophia and Kate and an even bigger fan of their relationship as it um, is put forward in their work and what I can see of them talking back and forth in interviews and things, that kind of relational component they're always talking about and how that comes through in this first person plural in tone. One of the things I think about in terms of being a writer, a thinker, someone that's engaged in literature and being a mother at the same time there's always this pull about whether you choose to be one or the other. I can remember those days of nursing my kids and trying to read with a book in my hand or trying to write with a, you know, the other, the free hand kind of thing and trying to create that space where both things could exist at the same time. Uh, So this work speaks to a bit of that about where we belong and where our space and which collective is and how we reframe those collectives. So that being said, it's not much of a surprise that my favorite uh, section of Tone, uh, which was fantastic throughout, but my favorite section was uh, guest lecture or reports to an academy. So it's kind of ironic, too, that I'm sitting here speaking into what equates to an owl, like uh, like in that section of the book. I'm speaking into my cell phone, kind of into a void. So There's this one section... Uh, And wasn't this what had first inspired our investigations? The possibility of immersing ourselves in the space of literature, unsystematically, recklessly, and together, with a merged and opaque utterance that would displace the demand for individual authenticity. The ways we had been taught to write about books would fall away. The claims to expertise, the recitation of the right names in the requisite order, the mannerly close reading— the painstakingly defended yet modest conclusion, then the writer's name and the title of her institution. and goes on from there. It's all the things we've been taught to expect, all of the things that we strive to fulfill. And we, as you noted, we, we become those imposters when we don't quite get there. But then at the end of the section, you you delve into something that you call the thin piping. If you could explore that a little more for us, that would be Amazing, uh, because the, the way this concludes too, when we're talking about the sheen on that barren landscape, that silent hall on that text, um, how do we create that collective out of a place that's been so heavily scripted like academia or some portions of the writing world? I guess that's what I'm most interested in, if that makes sense. Thank you for responding.
2: Thank you so much, Francis.
0: So, holding in mind the end of Francis's question about finding a collective in an overdetermined space, our second question is from *Past Between the Covers* guest Elvia Wilk, and she was on the show for her novel *Oval*, which is a conversation I still think about many years later. And and since then, she's written the essay collection *Death by Landscape*. She actually gave me two questions to choose from. And normally I would have chosen to play the one from a very different part of the book. But I decided to have Francis and Elvia's questions harmonize instead because I don't think it's a coincidence that they both gravitated to the same place in your book. And I think it's speaking to something central about it, uh, this relationship to the academic.
3: Hi, Kate. Hi, Sophia. This is Elvia. I was lucky enough to be at your book launch in Brooklyn last night. And congratulations. Um, afterwards, I spent the evening with two friends, and we talked all night about tone. So the conversation lives on, and this feels like a good um, argument in support of the idea that tone and tonality is conversational and you know emerges in the friction between viewpoints, subjectivities and approaches. Um, I have a lot of questions that I could ask you, um, but I wanted to focus on one thing that really struck me in the chapter Guest Lecture or Reports to an Academy, where you talk about Stefano Harney and Fred Moten, um, the undercommons, their, their work kind of underpins a much of the book. It's under the book. Um, and there's a quote from them where they say, in regards to kind of academia and writing and the publishing industry, there are lots of people who are angry and who don't feel good, but it seems hard for people to ask collectively, why doesn't this feel good? And just so much of what we do doesn't feel good, even though it should. We have all the ingredients in place, creativity, solidarity, friendship, collaboration, idea making in the classroom and beyond, some kind of infrastructure for intellectual exchange. But man, like the conference space feels bad in the body. And what this chapter is doing, I think, is talking about, well, there's a light lampooning of academia, which I appreciate. <laughs> there's also, you know, a description of what a body feels like at a lectern or giving a talk or in a conference room. Um, and the whole book, you know, it's born of conversations you had in classrooms and that you've formed this um, shifting committee on atmosphere. So there's there's a little bit of like um, academic institutional framing to the whole project. But what comes out or sort of what emerges to me towards the end in this chapter specifically on the academy is a consideration of the tone of the places in which we work and the way that the tone of those infrastructures and institutions makes it really hard for us to create work with other tones that are not shaded, the color of the conference room, the smell of the Xerox machine, the weird hierarchy set up at the lectern and this book seems like or feels like a project where the two of you wanted to create a space with the different tones that your writing could take on different tones so I'd love to ask you about the relationship between the spaces that we create um, the tonalities that they lend themselves to in our work and how we have to create different spaces for making if we want to write work with different sorts of tones. Thank you so much Elvia.
2: I just want to say when Francis was talking, I turned to the page and my page fell out of the galley. And then my AirPod fell out. And then other things fell out. So I literally started deconstructing, which seemed really important somehow. <laughs> and also when we met Elvia, Elvia asked me to smell her purse. We've lampooned this like odor regulation and aviary or animal that chapter. And I was thinking of the good hedonic tone like the hedonic tone of these questions, like how how good they made, I would say, can I say us feel, how good they made us Absolutely. feel. Absolutely, yes. Um, I want to start by saying that there was a question by the wonderful Claire Fallon at our event about what what chapter we are or something, like what, what tone we are. And Sophia said that we I was lighted windows But I actually think I feel the most akin to the guest lecture chapter. This idea of precarity and feeling like a guest, it reminds me of Banu's amazing line, it's exhausting to be a guest in someone else's house forever and how to wash a heart. But that feeling of exhaustion and alienation, but trying to find some sense of mischievousness or pleasure outside. Um, we also quote from, you know, we we deal with Renee Gladman in this chapter and Yoko Tawada's Memoirs of a Polar Bear, translated by Susan Bernofsky, this idea of, you know, every conference is a circus, you know, and the sort of um, the desire to enact real conversations about literature and the awkwardness and alienation of these settings. I want to say that the that we're lampooning at the beginning of guest lecture, because I know my employers won't listen to this. I feel I can be more specific (laughs) that it was an event that the book I published on Hervé Gbert was a Columbia University Press book, which is technically one of the institutions where I am quite precariously employed in a very untenured way where they were ostensibly celebrating me and brought in Sophia to this place, but this is not an institution where I have been recognized in any way. So there was a bubbling hilarity to the event, I think for both me and Sophia, there was a, and then Susan Bernofsky was on the panel, but on Zoom, you know, Susan Bernofsky, who I think of, you know, for, know her Tuata um translations and her Kafka translations so she was like the perfect elective affinity and co-conspirator so I think much like the the friction and energy of Sophia teaching Nella Larson there was a real beauty to, I mean, Columbia University Press has been amazing and they're very separate from the university. But this idea of us speaking into this smooth owl-like animal to project this to Zoom. And, you know, there were, you know, a few of my grad students in the audience, like lovely, wonderful, supportive grad students, but very few people in the audience. So I think that absurdity felt so perfect. It felt like this perfect way to think about Gladman and calamity, which is so much also exhaustion with academia and that guest feeling and to think through memoirs of a polar bear. It just, you know, so, you know, I guess I will end this by saying that I am not a scholar. No one has ever called me a scholar. (laughs) No one has accused me of being a scholar. And I think I take joy, I try to, I have to take joy at my outsiderness and deep precarity at these institutions that very precariously still temporarily host me, even though I've been at both for a decade. So the question of finding a language outside of academia, I mean, that's really the only language that I I do have. That's wonderful Kate
1: that's amazing it brings up so much and both of those questions are also just so rich i think there's the there's the outside of academia that that Kate has just mentioned and there's also the the undercommons and the undercommons is inside academia and the idea of the undercommons is is finding those spaces and finding those cracks where you can exist and they, and and it is written to people who are toiling in in the underbelly, you know, That's to right. graduate students, to postdocs who don't have a permanent position, to adjunct professors who live in precarity, um, to assistants of all kinds, and and to
2: academics of
1: color at these institutions and to academics as well. Of color, yeah, absolutely. And so, to me, when I what i what I'm what I'm thinking about together, sort of inspired by those questions is you know the idea of the undercommons it's an idea of finding spaces that are small within something that is large so there's something inherently sort of fragmented about it it's it's somehow about fragments because it's about cracks it's about existing in the cracks and finding those little spaces and in in the guest lecture chapter which i also adore it's it's a it's i feel very close to it an important figure there is kafka So the first question Mm -hmm. mentions that thin piping, like what is up with the thin piping? (laughs) And the thin piping is the piping of Josephine, the mouse singer in Kafka's story. And then also in that chapter, Red Peter is very important. Report to an academy with, you know, with, with that very formal diction of, you know, honored Honored members of the academy, um, which always reminds me of that it's it's recorded somewhere in kafka's journals that he he had to open he had to open a meeting for whoever he was working for, you know whatever org institution he was working for and and his his first line as he opened the meeting was something like. I must open the discussion this evening with a regret that it is taking place. <laughs> that, that formal diction
2: It's yeah. like that formal diction. It's also like the Valsurian formal diction that's kind of
1: servile, but is in some yeah. way yeah. deeply playful. Yeah, yeah, there's joy, which is what I wanted to get to about, about this idea of finding the collective in the question, how to find the collective in an overdetermined space, so there's the undercommons, there's the fragmented space that one is existing in, and then there's also there's something, I think, uh, powerful and there's an agency in taking the, the features of academic writing that we are writing against, you know, the abstract and the keywords and the significant statement, which we actually, you know, kind of mined journals about meteorology for those because we were playing with that atmosphere idea there is a joy to that which is about a kind of melancholy pleasure of the very things that you're alienated from and that very academic right. tone the tone of the academy that elvia is talking about in her wonderful question there is something sort of sadly sweet about mm-hmm. taking those those things and viewing them as fragments so that the abstract and the keywords So that they don't play their usual role, they don't become signs of expertise, but they actually become almost like old broken toys that you've found in some thrift store and you've brought home and you're now kind of cobbling together some kind of collage or something new with them. You know, they exude something that is very sad and yet also also pleasurable in a way you know we were so drawn to these characters to the characters in, in in memoirs of a polar bear and to kafka's characters who are like sadly caught in this broken kind of circus and yet they have attachments they have attachments to aspects of the circus as well so then it becomes you know how can you take that sort of i guess what what would be you know a position of repair thinking of of sedgwick's essay on on paranoid versus depressive positions you know that depressive reparative position where you say I'm going to collect the pieces of this you know sort of disastrous thing that can in their broken state become a sort of a sort of comfort a a cocoon a, a sense of of shared pleasure with another a kind of you know something that is that is broken and put back together again I think is part of what's going on in that chapter.
2: And with Sedgwick, there's so much that the depressive position, and this is something you've been saying to me over the years of our friendship, that the depressive position is one of love. It's a position yeah. of of deep love. And I think the the whole tone project perhaps originated with um, Sophia teaching Noah Larson. I think this year long animal lecture that I deeply loved and deeply bonded yeah. with my students over Zoom taught while I was this like, environmental writing chair, which is completely meaningless and does not confer any stability or contract whatsoever, doing this over zoom, when I had a newborn, I literally had a newborn as I was teaching this, you know, and I would, I would put the zoom on dark, and I would be nursing, like an animal. While I would be teaching, you know, Kafka and Memoirs of a Polar Bear, I think that melancholy commingled with joy, me being the guest lecturer, because that's our yeah. category at Sarah Lawrence, which is what we're currently trying to organize about. It's just we've been called guests forever. We're guests, even if we've been there 20 years, we're guests. Um, like it's just this this category of a person. And I think that's why we're so, we were so also drawn to seasonal associate by Ike Geisler and Hiroka Oyamada's The Factory. Like all of these sub, sub positions, like the sub, sub, like what happens if you're not viewed as real under capitalism? And so much are not, of us are viewed as temporary. So much of us are not viewed as real or we are the distinguished guest lecturer, which, you know, Sophia, you're going to go travel to play that part you know next week right so we we i think we are finding some joy like what is the actual conversation we can find like i remember at a columbia faculty meeting the full timers talk for three hours the, the adjuncts must attend the last 15 minutes and sit in this circle around and can't speak and then afterwards everyone is invited to cocktails Served by the graduate students, and none of the full timers go. Only the guests are there, only the adjuncts are there. And I remember being like chatting with people about tone, chatting with Katrina Dotson, who translated Cloyseless Specter's The Buffalo that we write about in it, and being like, this is the joy. Mm. The yeah. chattiness, the the irritation, the these little actual conversations. Like that's the joy.
0: I want to also echo Francis's. Loving the way you're relational with each other publicly. In your Orion interview, Kate, Emily notes that Sophia is the most intimate and least fraught relationship in your book, The Light Room, and notes how you've corresponded in past works too. And she characterizes her text messages to you within the text as like little life rafts that feel outside the time and space of your otherwise chaotic, if also cozy, domestic sphere. And you say, quote, Sophia is the most brilliant person I've ever known, and with that there is also such care, such attentive thinking and feeling to the world. She's a genius who also lives an ethical and thoughtful life. I think she's the only person who I can complain about my domestic sphere to, who I can tell about my children's medical appointments or financial pressures, but who then also holds my writing life as dear and important and worth protecting. This is an invaluable gift for me. I also credit Sophia with getting me involved in thinking through the collective and climate, its grief and potentials for a radical optimism. And long ago, Sophia, you wrote a piece when Kate left social media called why you left social media a guesswork. Part of it reminds me of tone when you say, I thought maybe you left because you couldn't stand the climate. Later, I questioned my use of the word climate. When is something a climate, and when is it just weather? I began to think about gathering, accumulation, cloud formation, warm and cold fronts, collectives, crowds, and money. I began to think about gravity, which a teacher of mine once described as the fact that matter likes to hang out together. I loved your blog. It gave me a shock when it disappeared as if I'd expected to land somewhere and then just kept falling. And then later, you say, in your absence, I mourn mostly because I don't know what you're reading. Because of you, I read Roland Barthes' lectures on the neutral. I would describe your blog, and your whole presence on the internet the way Bart describes his elusive ideal, the neutral, as a field of non-paradigmatic intensities. Non-paradigmatic is a boring word, but it's important. It means what can't be codified, what doesn't lend itself to code. And later, I considered you a friend and then we had so much in common, we shared so many passions and we were marginalized, if I can call it that, in similar ways. Most of all, I thought we shared a tone, an outlook, a sensibility, the, in- the, <laughs> the Internet's version of the timber of a voice. I, I felt most like myself when I was retweeting you. And the first time you responded to me, the first time we really talked, I turned silver all over the inside of my skin. So thinking about this intimacy you've forged within your books and outside your books across space and time, and how you're now inhabiting the quote-unquote same voice, the the committee, essentially facing outward together towards us as a one that is, a, that is also a two. I guess I wanted to ask you about audience or address, if you have a sense of who you're addressing together, if you're doing a writing toward or, or not, and if so, toward what or toward who. As a lead-in, I wanted to read how Sophia started her interview at the Roanoke Review where she read from Teresa Ha Kyung Cha's book Audience Distant Relative You are the audience You are my distant audience I address you As I would a distant relative As if a distant relative Seen only Heard only through Someone else's description Neither you nor I Are visible to each other I can only assume that you can hear me I can only hope that you hear me So Talk to us about address or or audience in tone, if if there is an imagined audience as you write it.
1: Well, first I have to say that I <laughs> the face that I made when essay <laughs> from I think twenty seventeen when I said that that you know yeah. we shared a tone, I, I you know the face that I made just made Kate burst out laughing because. <laughs> I had forgotten what I had said in that essay and just how much that essay is about, you know, and weather and accumulation and cloud. And it's kind of like, clearly a lot of this has been part of our conversation for a really long time.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I just want to point out that
2: Sophia has been writing me love letters for a long time that she then publishes online. (laughs) I mean, that's what they are really. I mean, everyone says, thinks me is always the one, you know, pouring out my love to you, but you you really were the one who started this sort of love letter. I mean, that's
1: what it is. <laughs> and it is ongoing because um, yes. the book that is coming out in 2024, Opacities, that's coming out in, I think, August now is the date, um, 2024 from Soft Skull. My book about writing is completely based, is essentially one big love letter. It is based yes. on our letters it's based on our epistolary relationship it's dedicated to kate so yeah we're really just (laughs) very in love with each other and then like living these different
2: lives we don't know how to cross the boundaries this is just one epic love affair
4: and it.
1: perhaps this is an answer to the question of audience and address, which is basically like we're writing to each other yeah, yeah and then sure. you know because I, I you know if I'm writing I, to speak for myself, if I'm writing to Kate, I'm not thinking about the fact that maybe this will become a work that is seen right. by other people because in the beginning, it's just not. it's just our exchange and and that feels to me, you know rightly or wrongly that it kind of feels like, enough so I don't I don't really think beyond that as much I guess while it's happening I remember this is the same period of time in which I was
2: writing drifts and that's when we really actually began a correspondence because Mm -hmm. you did comment on my blog and we did have a sort of friendship and mutual admiration obviously had a sense of elective affinities but we had never really formalized it. But I think you were the start where you started writing these pieces that i they were, they're were they not actually about me. And that's what's interesting about what I think of as the twin pieces, which is Why You Left Social Media, a guesswork, and then the piece you wrote um, called Kane Mieko that Paris Review oh, yeah. published. I mean, that was also the first piece that Mensa Damari published, um, the Why You Left Social Media, who has now worked with you on the White Mosque at Catapult, and then we'll be working with you on Opacities at Soft Skull. So that's another collaboration that's right. that that started from that. And I remember people would see me on the street. I mean, it was like the thing that people spoke to me about when they saw me, like when I saw other writers or readers, like, oh, Sophia wrote an essay about you. But the thing is like everything that you do, there is such a trickiness with how you're playing with autobiography and biography in that piece, I mean, this is why, you you know, you have this whole active multi-book genre of opacities, because it's very tricky, because you're really also writing about yourself. Um, And Mm -hmm. so there is this blurring, and I think this was your, kind of one of your first experiments using me and using our collaboration as this sort of ventriloquism, much like Zabald performs, thinking of Michael Hamburger, And Rings of Saturn, which is also this scene that I am fascinated about, that I have seemingly written about over many works, thinking about you often, but where we're doing this like playful sense of correspondence, correspondence in this ghostly spiritual way. But like, everyone's like, oh, that's about you. I'm like, if you actually look at it, like I am not the scholar of African literature that you're writing about in the catapult piece. And you also don't
1: have gray hair.
2: I don't, yes, exactly,
1: (laughs) but I do, you know, so that was, like, I was describing myself, and I'm saying you, and trying to get into this idea of what happens on social media, and the way that other people, when you put their voices into your feed, like, you are you, because of all those, because of all those other pieces that you've built into this feed.
2: And I remember reading the piece, and I felt this, like, um, tickle, like, it felt like a friction, like a tickle, like, I felt, like, itchy, like, oh, like you can do this and it felt, it felt like a delicious wrongness. Like I get reading Bon and Bon Liu, bon Kapil's work and her blog, where she performs like a, you know, this like reading of, of Teresa Hockenshaw's dictate at the beginning or publishes her like notes that she wrote about reading various blogs. And there's such a name dropping gossiping to that. That's also so deeply loving and in effect creating communities and deciding this like gatekeeping world of corporate publishing. This is not who we're writing to. We're actually writing to our elective affinity, some who might be alive and some who might be each other. And I think there was this moment in these various blogs where many of us, and I think this is, is this idea of community are like, no, we're writing to each other. We're, we're We're not going to obey the scarcity model of competition. In fact, we're going to make something beautiful about it and i was actually just i accidentally discovered the email that you wrote me that kane mieko piece which was not a prose piece at first even though it was so beautiful where i said i cannot read kane mieko i cannot read it this what was it the scholarly article about her yeah
1: it wasn't you can read you can read I with no problem? The but issue it been is translated. that there was, a scholarly, there was a scholarly book about that wrote right. about her. And you were like, ugh, this, I It was I like can't. hands in photography. So you translated it for me.
2: And then there was that yeah. beautiful moment where you're finally watching Sans Soleil, which of course I write about in Drifts. So you watching Sans Soleil with me. And you note that the woman, the Japanese woman on the train at the end of Sans Soleil looks like me. And Mm -hmm. you and I had not met in person at that point. And I think that's the origin of us, like this flirtation, that's the collaboration, that's the acknowledgement that we live in very different places. And we are in fact very, we're we're quite different in many ways, but there is this like, of course we're reading things together. Of course we're writing things together. All the time Sophia and I discover we're reading the same book and thinking about like Daisy Hildyard's The Second Body, in collaboration so we've ceased being startled by these ghostly correspondences and we began to put each other in each other's works
1: yeah although it took a long time it took a number of years before we would like stop sort of freaking out like what you're reading that yeah i'm reading that (laughs) like how did this happen and we finally said you know what we need to just stop like yelling whenever this happens because it just it just is seems to be all the time like, sorry to Keith and John, but the
2: secret is that we're in love. We're kind of it, like it's like a literal kind of it. <laughs>
0: all right. You heard it here first. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> this is a good segue because I want to return to this notion of we, but I also want to sort of look at what are some of the risks of a we, not the risks between the two of you necessarily, but just a we in the world. But first of all, just to return to thinking of a dress and thinking about the we Uh, I think of Sophia's The White Mosque, the line, what is any identity but a story that a community swallows whole? And then in the Kirkus Review for the book that says, reaching beyond all state and religious boundaries, Samatar is always saying we, incorporating more and more of humanity into a growing inner circle. Or Kate, you thinking about the work of David Wanarovich saying, His work, his ardent first person is radiant with others, ecstatic and contemplative and howling with fury and grief. To me, he is a model that an eye can be thinking toward the collective, can be thinking toward the crisis of one's body and time, as well as mourning and caring for the world and others. I love how you both explore, I think, the liberatory power of the we or the exploded I here and in your works. But I also think of the dangers that some writers, especially writers of color, explore around the we because of who is always, in an unspoken way, excluded from it. Like if we think, I think, of Whitman's we connected very explicitly to nation building that excludes the indigenous or the Mexican Um, or Dion Brand, who says in The Blue Clerk, I do know that the bodies that we inhabit now are corpses of the humanist narrative, awful corpses. And when we appear on the street, that is what we are appearing as. So I can only give you this view of it. We inhabit these bags of muscle and fat and bones that are utilized in humanist narrative to demonstrate the incremental ethical development of a certain subject whom is not we. So I ultimately want to ask you some questions about this and the risks of the we in relation to Zebald eventually. But before I do, I wonder if this prompts any thoughts for either of you as you do this we project and thinking about the we often not being as inclusive as it seems to project itself as.
1: Yeah, I think this is, I mean, this is clearly something that's enormously important in my writing. I'm thinking specifically of, of the essay, Standing at the Ruins, that was published a few years ago in the White Review, which is about climate change and emotion, and how important it was in that essay to be very specific about who I was talking about when I said we, that like, look, I'm talking about the middle class industrialized nation living in the suburbs like this is the very specific we that i'm talking about when i say these things and i think that that's a very important move i also do believe strongly in an aspirational we and a we that that understands that it has not occurred yet Mm -hmm. but that is reaching for a new kind of toward toward community building and toward and is is inviting or offering new kinds of collaboration, and has a hope for maybe a future we that does not exist yet. You know, while recognizing the importance of defining a we, part of my desire to to keep a space for using first person plural does come out of what I express in the White Mosque, which is like I'm always saying we, and I always know that the group I'm saying we about what, you know, the groups that I belong to, whether it's Somalis or whether it's, you know, North American Mennonites could very easily say to me, like, no, not you. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like you're not us. Um, we are something other than you. So I, when I write we or that aspirational we, it's also a hope for myself. It's almost with a, a buried question mark. Like, well, I hope that I can be, part of it like i hope you're gonna let me and i hope it's okay that i'm saying we that's why i want to hold that when it comes to the we that is in tone the committee to investigate atmosphere what i think is important about that we which is neither a universal we nor necessarily an aspirational we this is a very small we this is a we that is like these two people tapping away in the cloud and that i think is something that's important to recognize there's something about the smallness of that we that that works i think against those universalizing or nationalist tendencies that we can have
2: i mean i think the the desire i mean i agree with everything that sophia said and standing at the runes is such an important essay and you do so much work also going so specifically into the local and the historical with that and moving through so many different time periods and I think it's that work is to think of communities and their very specific local historical moment that I think you know I've been thinking about as ecological like what does it mean to write ecologically it means to have a, a gaze upon others and to try to recognize the other even if it's the animal in all of its specificity. I also want to say RIP white review. I mean I when we have this conversation about all these publications oh, that's so sad, sad. that can publish such brilliant and urgent writing. It's really quite as well as conversations. I love it's the really white quite review. yeah. It's really quite dwindling. It's so sad. And also the fact that they you know that they didn't get an arts council grant. Like again, this idea of these 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 places not being funded, you know, and 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 how to find these 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 other spaces. I don't know. I think that the we of tone is obviously us. I mean, you was know, <laughs> contradicting what I said <laughs> before. I think it's a we, but it's also in these little moments where we're referencing, thinking about Francis's question. We're ra- referencing our different moments. These were playful yet intentional moments. Where we're gesturing to, obviously, we're speaking from different spaces. So, what are these different bodies, situations, spaces, you know, landscapes? At the end, we go into different memories and different spaces. But I think the desire for atmosphere, the desire for what Heather Davis calls an atmospheric commons, I'm circumventing this specific point of view question to think that an atmospheric commons is also just recognizing that we are breathing the same air together. We are all breathing. We are a we, even though we are also so specific and in so many, and we have so much difference to us. We are a we as opposed to being in these individual bubbles. So I think the desire, the desire for collectivity is a desire for everyone to be in their own glorious specificity, historical specificity. Um, but also a desire to to have a sort of awareness that we are sharing this atmosphere together. I think there's a longing in tone towards the ecological and towards thinking about, you know, how are we thinking with, as opposed to just thinking alone? Yeah. And how is the idea of the I also, also you know, we think of the we as being dangerous. The I is also, in a way,
0: yeah, I think so too. The
2: the exceptional I, the the um the hierarchy of the I. So what is what is the right point of view? I don't know. I mean, Sophia and I if we're going to continue with this, which we've been, you know, thinking about, you know, one of the things we were thinking about was writing about I and we. Like what it what what are these points of views? They're all tricky.
1: And how much does we also you know recognize i love what you just said kate about how we are breathing the same air and i think of the moment in tone there's a point where we're writing about a sick child and you know that's that we're breathing this air we're breathing this viral air at times and you had a sick toddler and i had a sick teenager <laughs> that's right and so in in tone it's just a sick child but like how much how much even in our different spaces we are actually breathing the same air
0: well, let me, let me take this into questions around Sebald's writing and the one place in the book where I found myself arguing with the book. First, I just want to preface it by saying that I love Sebald's writing, but I want to think about the notion of what's included in a voice because ever since I learned about his relationship to his obscured Jewish sources when I was preparing for my talk with Daniel Mendelson. I felt so uneasy. And to be clear, Daniel Mendelsohn, um, Jewish and from a family who mostly didn't survive the Holocaust, he felt like regardless of methodology, that Sebald's remarkable art on behalf of Jewish memory will endure on its behalf because of its remarkableness. But the whole fictional arc of Austerlitz's life as one example And many of the small details were not only taken from a real Jewish woman's life, Susie Beckhofer, but from her actually published memoir about her kinder transport experience and taken without permission or attribution. And she even sought acknowledgement, writing an op-ed in the London Times titled Stripped of My Tragic Past by a Best-Selling Author. And many other Jewish people's lives were appropriated without attribution in Zebald's work. And and some of them were quite resentful of how they were portrayed. One Jewish painter whose life found itself in the emigrants called the project a narcissistic enterprise. And there are articles on this. Judith Shulevitz's article for The Atlantic, W.G. Zabald ransacked Jewish lives for his fictions. Why did he lie about his sources? And a New York article, W.G. Zabald the trickster, whose author says of Zebald, The author's deep, even hypnotic identification with his subjects, what Angier calls his imaginative sympathy, might also be called theft or German plunder. But what sticks with me is that he positioned himself as the conscience of his country, so much so that he chose exile from it. And yet he stole from Jews and obscured that he did. And as a non-Jewish German author, positioning himself in a moral way to the atrocities of his own people, I feel like he owed it to the sources and to Jewish memory to, in borrowing Christina Rivera Garcia's terms, to disappropriate his materials, to make clear the materials. So it was in this chapter of the book and that's only because of, of, not from my experience of reading Zabald, but from my experience of preparing to talk to Mendelssohn. So it's in this chapter of the book, and only in this chapter, when I found myself arguing with lines like, to read Zabald is to read a library of the past, or that rings of Saturn comes from the redemption of inferior objects, or the comparison of Zabald's mode to Sedgwick's notion of reparative reading where the impulse is additive and accretive, when, when the creation of his collection of fragments feels like it comes also from erasure and obscuring. But I also feel like in exploring his tone, you do hint at this subtext often and regularly. You say the tone of, of the rings of Saturn is from a great height, and that tone operates in Zabald like a filter There has to be a consistency like a glaze, or that a bird's eye view abandons landscape so no detail is visible. And that reminded me of a speech Jory Graham gave 30 years ago that I quoted back to her the last time we talked, where she says The opportunities afforded the human soul by the acceptance of a limited view, which the making of choice entails cannot be overestimated, it seems to me. One is created by limited point of view, by the suffering it entails, in a way that one cannot be simply by the overall mid-air view we now think of as quote-unquote understanding, because it is a condition in which action is by definition impossible, the action of interpretation as well as the action of moral discernment. At the very least, both capacities should be present in us at once, particle and wave, left and right-handed paths. I feel like both of you are concerned with archive building, about indebtedness by lineage, and I think your modes of being are not in any way hovering over life in a mid-air view or a bird's-eye view so that the details disappear. I think that's the opposite of what both of you are doing. And I do think you capture Zabald's tone really well. And it even sort of hints at the obscuring, I think, with this notion of a glaze. But I guess I wanted to just (laughs) in this very long way, disappropriate my misgivings about his project in the the gesture of his project and hear what you had to think about it, because it feels like it's connected to the, maybe the dangers of the transcendent or the universal or the disembodied hovering, hovering over a space.
2: Well, I didn't read the biography. That was something we talked about when we were writing this chapter, Sophia. I think you did. I I didn't. But I I will say the sense you have of Zebald's ethical project with Jewish lives seems apt and rich, and there's a lot there. But we don't write about Austerlitz or the immigrants in Tone. And Tone focuses on rings of Saturn. Very. I mean, we focus very specifically on the effect produced in rings of Saturn. So the quote that you named about what is produced here is a uh, different voices. We are not speaking about emigrants or, or about Austerlitz. We're not speaking actually about Jewish histories. I, I get the larger point of his ethical project and how he utilized ventriloquism. I mean, I think Austerlitz is really more of a composite too, right? He's like, also Walter Benjamin is a huge inspiration for Doc Osterlitz. But we are focusing on this travelogue, Rings of Saturn. And what we are specifically speaking of is the Baroque labyrinthine quality of of different centuries and that quality of the voice. But we also bring in critics to Rings of Saturn in that chapter. And we engage most specifically with Mark Fisher, thinking about how Sebald, views Suffolk as kind of misery porn, right? Like doesn't see it, isn't actually there, isn't steeped specifically in the landscape there, and is in fact always using the landscape and the kind of misery of that landscape, which Fisher finds quite beautiful, to go into so many different histories. So we're engaging very specifically with that critique because we're thinking very specifically about Rings of Saturn, which is quite different from the immigrants and from Austerlitz. But I will say that part of Sophia's and my dialectic through the years has been discussing rings of Saturn and discussing the appropriation of voices and rings of Saturn. But there's less the issue, which is a very valid issue, of how he appropriates Jewish history in rings of Saturn, More, more his chapter on Joseph Conrad and the Congo and how he's thinking about the archive there Or also, you know, even the twinning with Michael Hamburger. But I would say, you know, something can be ethical and can be ethically dubious, but that doesn't also make it art, right? Like Mm -hmm. art can be about theft and art often is ethically gray, but um, I can't speak for the specific accusations there.
1: I would just add that in addition to engaging with the critique that Mark Fisher makes, we also make our own critique of Sebald in the book, which is around this idea of collection and and collecting and how this project of bringing together all of these different voices can be seen in a number of different ways. And one of them is that appropriative aspect of collecting, which is very much linked to the colonial project, right, to, you know, collecting collecting countries or collecting or museum collecting and the kind of colonial archives and museum archives or to the idea that Susan Sontag writes about in On Photography right so yeah
2: oh right there is that moment that Sontag writes about using the that famous photograph of the bodies at Bergen-Belsen the discovery of the bodies yeah there is that although we don't yeah we don't engage specifically with that
1: after we've written about, you know, the possibility of seeing collection as reparative, then we write, you know, these relations might be reparative as we suggested, but they also might be aggressive, expressing the hunger for power Susan Sontag perceives in photography, the urge to freeze and shrink reality into collectible items, and then quoting Sontag, consciousness in its acquisitive mood. I mean, I did read the biography, so there's definitely an awareness of the problems of the project which are yes maybe you know specifically rising to the surface in austerlitz and the emigrants but but you right. also i mean it is an issue that runs through zebalt's work as a whole
2: mm. and we also say that you know that the work is used as a train for mere departure for fugue states into past genocides and, epo- and epochs like how he uses so yeah. far. i mean I don't think you should look to like me or Sophia to um, defend Zebald. Oh, I wasn't. I thinking think we've of always you. viewed. Yeah. yeah, I think we've always had this this rich and complicated sense of him as an author, and I think his use of archives, his the fact that he doesn't stage the archival encounter, the fact that he the trickery in which he hides like austerlitz, you know, it's it's all very very gray it's all very ethically labyrinthine. I do think there can be something that happens online where like, I remember there was like this quote about Ann Carson that circulated and people were like, why is this person complaining in a room? Like, I think something can circulate online or someone can read an interview and then they can just make this judgment about an author who has this very rich, very complex, very loaded body of work i mean Zabald mm-hmm. was such. i mean yeah he completely idolized often a colonial past his obsession with great hotels you know like there is this like romanticism to him that's so suspect but we've always we've always loved him and held him suspect there's always been, <laughs> yeah,
0: there's always that. <laughs> that's I, I guess that's where i find myself too and and to be clear i wasn't expecting you to align and defend but i was just curious because i felt like the ways you described the tone seemed to have that ambivalence around the project at the same time or an an uncertainty about the project at the same time
2: it's so tricky to take on voices of others i mean to write about the lives of others to write about atrocities like he does it's so it's so tricky i can't defend it i find it fascinating i find his project so fascinating and ambivalent. I've always been filled with such great quantities of ambivalence, but for us, and maybe this is a problem to think of the style. We wanted to ask like, what is the tint? What is mm-hmm. the tint? And maybe that tint, the blueness of the tint that is this romanticized veil. You know, there is something so romanticized also about rings of Saturn, like so Victorian. It's, it's, so, it's so complicated. And yet, I still love it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure we spend the rest of the time with my favorite part of the book, which is also something that Kate's been uh, nodding towards throughout the interview, which is your engagement with the non-human and and the environment. And Kate is, as I mentioned before, has you credited Sophia with your your deepening engagement with these concerns, and the lightroom is in part a celebration of green spaces, and you take your classes outside the classroom, as you've mentioned, you've taught a class called After Nature that troubles what nature writing is. And your meditations in the in that book on polar bears and beluga whales because of their long periods of nursing feels like another way you move to a we in the best sense of it, which extends, I think, both to the pandemic and forest fire smoke and the way we share air, that our shared precarity is shared because we share air, And when I hear lines from tone like tone as in sound stands for the oral, the presence of the speaking body, it indicates what is absent from writing. Tone is the absent presence. When I think of tone as the absent presence, somehow I want to relate tone to shared air. Or when Harney in the Under Commons says that the concepts they use are a way to develop a mode of living together a mode of being together that can't be shared as a model, but rather as an instance. Or when you quote Rene Gladman from Prose Architecture saying, language has an energy that eludes verbal expression. This is a reflective energy, language dreaming of itself. I encounter these energies in the space between words, between sentences, in the crossing of passages through the hum of thinking, or thinking that shapes the language I'm reading or writing? And then the committee asks, is tone the dream of language? I I think of you putting forth that if tone concerns ecology, then it is about making space for relation, and that perhaps tone is not language, is outside language, is pointing to the body that is speaking the language, and the other bodies that share that space with it but it's also, I think, not-not language. And I particularly love the chapter aviary or animal, the one that follows the favorite chapter of, of Francis because it points to so many texts that resonate with me, whether Banu's Humanimal, Kafka's Animal Stories, Ted Chang's The Great Silence, Clarice Liz Spector, Tawada, and many more. And at one point you ask, What would a literature look like that dissenters the human as sovereign, as center of the narrative, perhaps even away from the anthropomorphic idea of voice? But I love how these meditations arrive ultimately at odor as tone, like you and Elvia smelling the purse at your book launch, um, which again brings us back to shared air. Otherness in Kanai's story, Rabbits, is marked by an intense odor, but also, she says, the smell comes from deep within me, an odor like that of an unseen bird flying under my nose. And this confusion of inside and outside, self and other, is one of air. Gugi Watyango says, which is more me, my arm or the air? You can cut off my arm and I will live This isn't really leading to a question per se, but I love all the provocations in this section. Could tone be a pheromonal signal, you ask? Are the Japanese novels that you look at in this section a form of glandular literature? Um, Donna Haraway saying that the term humanimal is a linguistic way of paying attention to the way humans and animals co-make each other in the making of history. Or maybe most... Provocatively enduring, Deleuze saying, to become animal, we must dismantle the face. And by extension, you saying, that killing the face is the way to enter the pack. So I have a question that follows this that's going to be Sophia Samatar specific. So maybe I'll ask Kate this question. Um, If you can talk more about tone as the dream of language or a shared air or odor or co-making a voice with animals or killing the face... To join the cross species collective, to join the pack. Um, what is this, what does any of this bring up for you around this part of the project of tone when we're crossing the species barrier, so to speak?
2: One of our original elective affinities that we realized later is that Kane Mieko, or are we saying mieko kane? There's so much, there's so much in terms of how Americans call her name and how.
1: Now, now people are saying Mieko Kanai.
2: Mieko Kane. So Mieko Kane's story, Rabbits, I read. I didn't take many literature classes as an undergrad a million years ago because I was a journalism student, but I took this class called Japanese Women Writers, and I actually read Yuko Shishima, which the Lightroom is so inspired by, and I read Mieko Kane. I read her Rabbits in this collection called Rabbits, Crabs, etc., And it turns out Sophia had also read this story in the same anthology, Sophia?
1: Yes, and loved it obsessively.
2: So both of this. And in some ways, the work is also, I mean, the work is so much one of doubling and blurriness. It's so much a story inspired by Alice in Wonderland. um, It's very keeping with that specific time period. There is a sense of being a writer in it, the sense of writing. I mean, she always meditates on writing in such an interesting way. But I think that there's always been a longing, and we both teach it, despite sometimes our students' revulsion, because it is a very grotesque piece. I think there has been this longing to write about the story and to write about rabbits. I have been thinking about a lot of these ideas that you mentioned for some time, I've been working on these series of something um, called Zoo Stories, one of which was just very proudly killed by the New York Review of Books. So I'm very proud of that. That's awesome. (laughs) Um, I think these are questions, David, too, of, of silence. Like, how does silence work within a text? What does it mean for a work to have like an ensemble feeling? And I think this is through Kafka's Animal Parables. But then also just thinking about the Anthropocene, thinking through the Anthropocene and how we center the human in literature. I mean, we center the individual, we center the human in literature. And what would it mean to have a different way of thinking? You know, to think about, you know, Robert Wall Kimmerer's idea of an Indigenous knowledge of listening experiments. Like, what would a literature look like that was reciprocal? that didn't center the human. And so a lot of these stories we're looking at, like Katrina Dodson's translation of Clarice Lispector's The Buffalo, are really just asking like, what is this collective body? You know, Is the animal or the bird actually seen? Like we look at the opening of the second part of Rings of Saturn where there's the demented quail and then there's also the taxidermy polar bear. And this question, this is guided by this, you know, beautiful journal article that I had read. This, like, is there reciprocity in the gaze here? Like, does, does the Zabel narrator actually see the polar bear or does the polar bear just represent something? So these are all, there's a lot of ambivalence, I think, to this question, but I think there's also, like so much of the project, a sense of optimism like can can something feel collective can can re- is reciprocity possible how can we decenter possibly you know the human and that Donna Haraway quote that you gave that's actually from an interview and she does this marvelous thing where she like links her hands together like the human animal is when we come together and she links her hands so it's like it's a different way of thinking, and I'm really drawn lately to thinking about how we can rethink these patterns that we had, and it's true, there is this, you know, Hiroko Oyamada's work has such a merging of the animal, there's such a sense of the animal as being part of life, but I think there's, you know, much like we talk about Reading Rings of Saturn with some ambivalence. There's like beauty and ambivalence to the to these works we're writing about here, where we're asking, you know, is the animal seen? And I think, you know, the becoming animal in Deleuze and Guattari, we're also looking at critically. Yeah, is the animal a metaphor? This idea of becoming, this multiplicity we're yearning for, you know, but where does the animal actually fit into it? So it's just. Very, I feel like it's a very open space. This chapter, where we're we're asking all of these questions productively and putting them next to each other, but I don't think there's like easy answers. It's a very open yeah. system.
0: I I think it's the highlight chapter for me, and I I also just to add on to your thing about is, does Zabel see the polar bear? You also have the instance of Barry Lopez choosing not to take the photograph of the polar bear. And right. Maybe that's even connected to collecting in a way too, and capturing. But around this question of what is the animal in the work, I wanted to ask a question to Sophia specifically as a fantasy writer around the imaginative and the humanimal. Fred Moten in The Undercommons* says, you can either talk about it as having a kind of toolbox or also talk about it as having a kind of toy box. With my kids, most of what they do with toys is turn them into props. They are constantly involved in this massive project of pretending. And the toys that they have are props for their pretending. They don't play with them the right way. A sword is what you hit a ball with, and a bat is what you make music with. I feel that way about conceptual and theoretical terms. In the end, what's most important is that the thing is put in play. What's most important about play is the interaction. In the end, it's the new way of being together and thinking together that's important and not the tool, not the prop. And He isn't talking about fantastical writing here, but it feels akin to doing so. And his own engagements with the myth of the individual or the notion of having a shared body include his lecture on Ursula Le Guin's Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas called transubstantiation and co-substantiation, which I explore when I talked with Adrian Marie Brown. But thinking of a toy box instead of a toolbox as a way of thinking, I also think of something you said in your conversation with Kate at the New Inquiry, where you're both meditating on the Midwest and on the tone of the Midwest. Um, and there you say, recently I was reading Space and Place by the geographer Yi Fu Tuan. What is a place, he asks. What gives a place its identity, its aura? He goes on to quote a 1924 letter from Niels Bohr to his fellow physicist Werner Heisenberg, written at Kronberg Castle in Elsinore. Bohr writes to Heisenberg, Isn't it strange how this castle changes as soon as one imagines that Hamlet lived here? Suddenly, the walls and ramparts speak quite a different language. As a humanistic geographer, Yi Fu Tuan is interested in that language, the way objects become invested with the symbolic. For him, this is what transforms an abstract space into a human cultural place. It's an entanglement of the human and the non human, a haunting, a romance. And lastly, at the Roanoke Review, talking about your co-authored book, Monster Portraits, you say of imagined monsters. Lately, I've been thinking of them as the human non-human. Of course, they're non-human. That's probably the most important thing about a monster or a beast of folklore, that they are non-human. They are there to represent the non-human or to get outside of the ordinary human mode. And yet they are not non-human in the same way as cats or coral reefs or bumblebees, right? Those are non-human things that are here in the world with us. The creatures that we imagine and make up only exist within us. They only belong to the human. So they are at the same time absolutely not human and extraordinarily human. There's nothing more human, really, than these monstrous creatures that only exist in our imagination. I love this. Thinking of all this, I was hoping you could talk about this project of tone and the chapters that engage with the non-human with this lens, not the true facts, true facts that are also seemingly fantastical, the true facts that we share air, that you know maybe air is more us than our arms, but but the trueness of these imagined spaces that, you're nodding towards and and that a lot of these authors in this chapter are, are they're creating creatures or making animals do things that they don't do
1: yeah yeah absolutely I think this I think it speaks to something that seems fundamental to tone to me which is that mingling of the the human and the non-human in a sort of you know Deleuze and Guattarian assemblage which involves both both the material and the virtual so it's both as Kate and I talked about in our conversation about the midwest which you mentioned at the new inquiry it's both the the material landscape and the place but it's also the stories that have been told about that place and it's the imagining of that place which does belong to the human and to the human imagination. I also really love the toy box over toolbox that you mentioned at the beginning of that question, the importance of play as something that is so fundamental to tone, which is also about entering into that space of sound and doing what you can with it. Again, from this kind of under comments or or sub sub Position, there is a materiality, there is something that you have arrived into, and you did not make it, and you cannot, you're not in charge of it, right? And yet, at the same time, there are ways that you can intervene. There are ways that you can take what you've been given and you can use it as something else. You can use the bat to play music. You can use the, and I think this is something Kate and I have tried very like explicitly and very consciously to do is to use what we have in our institutional settings to our advantage, you know, so we'll be like, well, let's find a way that we can make this, take what we've been given or take what's offered as this like you know, lecture experience, guest lecture experience. And then how can we how can we play with it? How can we use it to do to play music? How can we make it into something that is going to be ours? And fantasy is absolutely, you know, fundamental to that. You have to be able to to dream up something that is that is On the outside to to connect with that outside and to something that is beyond what appears to be the materials at your disposal, because it is that that virtual element, the the imagination, the dream space that enables you to transform to at least to some small extent, sort of the, the conditions that you have been given and that you did not necessarily make. And I think, you
2: know, it's interesting thinking about fantasy, you know, some of the works we are writing about here are speculative works like the factory, but we've been kind of slowly and I think it will be a slow process, especially because we're trying to think of something that would be a new form. I mean, Sophia and I are always interested in our own work and then together is like, what is the form? Like, and also what is necessary? Like, is this necessary that we write a book or can it be? And I think this is what Lauren <laughs> Bellant gives us too, that there's so much in Lauren Bellant's conversations or interviews where the theory can be spoken about. And I think we tried that with the Midwest. It was a way for us to be together and to be thinking together. But I think as we continue to think about atmosphere, we're turning even more to fantasy to to this idea of the fantasy novel um and also the dystopian novel like to think about what kind of complicated utopia is necessary to actually imagine multiplicity and to actually imagine mutual care and we need we need fantasy for that and i think you know we've been thinking about like what are some of the works we've been thinking about like to Johnson's Moomins and you know ecological collapse,
1: or um Jacqueline Harpam, I Who Have Never Known Men, which is an amazing book.
2: Or um Marlon Haashoffer's The Wall, like to imagine yeah. these sort of utopia like utopia within apocalypse. And I think that's less the space where starting with this Midwestern conversation, we're trying to imagine: can we continue the speculative platform? practice can we continue these experiments in plurality albeit in a different form and maybe it is just a conversation or they are just interviews but can we can we imagine a space that is an atmospheric commons and I think we need we need fantasy for that
1: this reminds me I feel like I should mention I haven't even told Kate this yet but at our event over the weekend a writer, um, the writer Brenda Ijima came up to me and mentioned that, you know, how how interesting it is that Kate and I have this collaboration when Kate is such a nonfiction writer and, you know, is basing her work on her life and I am like this fantasy writer writing things in worlds that I've completely made up. And I said, yeah, I think that (laughs) is interesting. And I think what's happening is that Kate is... A non-realist realist, and I'm a realist non-realist.
2: Yeah. I don't identify <laughs> my gender as being a non-fiction writer. That is that. not how I personally identify. It is what I've been constrained into teaching.
1: But yeah, and I think your work is both, always you know, speculative. All of your work yeah. is speculative. I mean, Book of Mutter is totally, you know, all of you know, green, like going all the way back. There's to me, when I read your work, I see it as fundamentally speculative and really like on the outside of of any kind of, you know, what I think of as a realist tradition.
2: Well, I think, you know, that's why we keep on talking about Lauren Berlant. This was a conversation or an essay that was just published online about genre trouble. Like, what does it mean to trouble genre now? And and I think we, we are looking for that awkwardness as essential and, and many tones you said something so good about this sophia like many tones like to think through reality now like that we are in like absurdity and tragedy at the same time so how we need to think through tone and to think through genre
1: yeah in order and to, to think to, about to... to think about inconsistent tone because we live right. in a complete a completely it or the tone is is totally inconsistent that we live in.
2: So, of course, our our tone, our genres have to be as well. To actually think about realism it is speculative now, like these realisms.
0: And I feel like, I mean, one of as we've touched on them many times, one of the ways or one of the main ways this book is is troubling genre or breaking genre is the academic genre. And I love how it, I'm, I'm excited by that. Uh, I think Christina Rivera Garza is doing that. I think Christina Sharp's doing that and many other writers. But this busting out, like the significance statement begins. We are still unsure at the present time whether we can make the statement for any significance, which I just love that the the book (laughs) opens this way.
2: (laughs) We pissed off the Publishers Weekly reviewer, though. Right? Oh, we really pissed off well, Publishers Weekly. I had a...
0: Okay, so do you, how much time do you have? I have time. Okay, because I... let. So as we go, like in these conversations, you know, when there's a time limit, I abandon questions improvisationally based on what's already been said. And if we have time, I had a question about the Publishers Weekly review.
2: I've only read the first line by accident. Because I'm so I'm so used to um, mean reviews, which is fine. But if I read them, it kind of infects me.
0: Well, um, I, I'm kind of mean that. to myself. Don't it. read the
2: whole review. No, please. I don't want to read the review.
0: Let me read it <laughs> and so see. Sensitive. Let me see if you even want to answer it. If you want me to, okay. So, so my question was going to be again about the negative re- review you got from Publishers Weekly that ends with the line. This perple- I don't know how it ends. Okay, it ends. I don't know how it ends. It ends with how the
4: line. Take out
1: your, take out your, like to, <laughs> mute your
0: computer. You, no, it's just, just two words. It's mute. two words. You're not. You're gonna survive this, Kate. It ends with the oh line. Oh my god. It ends with the line. This perplexes. Um. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> who I'm,
2: is this
0: uh, person? I don't know who this person is, but I, I, and I'm not saying that they would like the book better. This reviewer, this anonymous reviewer if they understood how your book was situated in the world. I have no idea if they would like it better, but it feels like they don't have a context for what you're doing, including in relationship to the Academy, and that they aren't aware of a lineage of books doing something similar. And it reminds me, bringing myself into this, it reminds me, the first time I interviewed Sheila Hattie 12 years ago, I had no idea the context and tradition she was writing from it was as if it had fallen out of the sky without a context and to be clear i love the book and she's Which been book was it was how, how should, it? A a should a person be she's been on three times yeah. she's been on three times and i i think it's still a good interview the first one but not me bringing any real like depth to the the conversation that i think i did when we talked about the last two similarly when sophia and i talked many years ago now too it, and we touched on academia, the difference between diversity initiatives and anti-racism, which I asked from a place of complete ignorance and naivete, curiosity, earnest curiosity, but but also I guess I would say a sense of, you know, cluelessness at that point. So thinking of your significance statement, we are still unsure at the present time whether we can make the statement for any significance. I'm not sure I disagree with the Publishers Weekly reviewer when they say The meaning of tone.
2: David, (laughs) you're reading us mean reviews. No, this isn't even mean. Because I think it's the opposite of a (laughs) No, this isn't even mean.
0: This isn't mean. They say the meaning of tone becomes even less clear as the volume proceeds.
2: Sounds like a compliment.
0: Whether it becomes less clear or not, I feel like the various explorations definitely don't build on each other but rather sort of sit alongside each other, sometimes compatibly and sometimes less so. And then it feels like, to me, it's by intent. And I think of my conversation with Kate Briggs about her book, This Little Art's Welcoming Gesture to All in Relationship to Translation, her engagement with the amateur and the uncodified, and also talking with Banu about how Lauren Berlant's writing about Banu suggests failure as a sort of praxis in her writing. Your gesture of continually asking questions that you don't have the answers to and that the book only begins to explore feels in relationship to this to me. And Bono's love of blogs and notebooks and diaries feels connected to your love of those things, Kate, where your last book could even be viewed as a love letter to these provisional forms Outside the world,
2: everything I write is a love letter to Banu. <laughs> everything, everything is a love letter to Banu.
0: So, like these provisional forms that are not making conclusive statements. That's often not where you would do that. Um, if this reviewer were aware of Briggs or or Banu Kapil or Moten Harney or Lauren Berlant or Kathleen Stewart, at a minimum, their opinion would be rooted in an awareness that you weren't failing at something you were trying to achieve, but rather you were oriented differently to failure and success. I, I don't know if this rings true to you. And I apologize about any harm I've caused by reading no, the no, parts I'm of the review. I, oh, my
2: God. It does, hurt, I mean, so much I,
1: worse. I did read the review and I really thought that the whole, like most of it, aside from the first line, which was terrible, but most of it was that, a compliment. That is
2: dull. That were dull. That was bad. Forget
1: that part, but a
2: lot of things, but we are not dull.
1: (laughs) No, we're not. But the, but the, but the, like I, when I read it, I thought if I read this, this negative review of a book, I would be very interested in that book because everything it says about, you know, being non-conclusive, being outside of expertise, never like just come out and say what tone is. That's what I would find inspiring and generative about such a book. So I would rush to read that book.
2: Yeah, what is a publisher's weekly anyway, really? I mean, the thing is, is that some of these review places are, Sophia, I feel like I'm quoting you, quoting Sedgwick, right? These are paranoid places, right? They're paranoid. It's not a reparative view of reading. And I remember when heroines came out and heroines got pilloried, but then also loved, it was very confusing. It's very confusing to have both exist at the same time, which is why it's kind of hard for me to listen to either negative reviews or overt praise. I tend, to, I tend to not be able to listen to any of it. But I remember Ann Boyer on Twitter, back when we were all on Twitter you know, said something like, you know, it's really hard to write for a specific community, but having those review you not know your community at yeah. all and not know your tradition at all. And that's when I always get kind of, I'm going on a tangent, but I get so kind of fed up with even the idea of auto fiction being only the dominant mode. As this idea of like, no, we're writing in many different traditions and very different awareness of many. And Sophia and I are writing in some traditions that overlap like new narrative, you know, Dodie Bellamy, we write to quite lovingly in the book and some that don't overlap, but we are writing to communities and we're writing very rigorously in the space of the minor and the thinking of a minor literature, which encompasses process becoming the amateur, the notebook space. I mean, this has always been our space, which I would say is a space against capitalism and homogeny against the individual genius author and towards community. And I would say that Publishers Weekly is not, you know, it's just what you know. It's a trade publication that says, buy this book, buy this book, don't buy this book. I reject these terms. I reject the terms of Publishers Weekly. Yeah.
0: Well, I feel like you've, grandly succeeded at creating a book that is generative and inspiring and welcoming us to pick up the instrument and ask the questions with you. Um, it was really great to be with you both today.
1: Thank you, Thank you David.
0: We were talking today to Kate Zambrino and Sophia Samatar, otherwise known as the Committee to Investigate the Atmosphere, authors of TONE from Columbia University Press, You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. So is there anything else you want to talk about that you would want to shoehorn in or anything you feel mm. un- uncomfortable about that you want to talk about that?
2: I was surprised the publisher's weekly came up, but that was
0: fine. <laughs> Are you okay? I no, it was it's it. totally
2: fine. No, I'm totally fine with it. Yeah, I'm totally fine with it. It was great. Yeah, it was great. You know, this is the problem with review organs dying up. Like, yeah. there has been such a problem like people have pitched this book or even pitched my last book, and I'm sure also The White Mosque. And like there there seems to be this idea, like publish the takedown. Without a doubt, I feel I could peg the identity of this publisher's weekly reviewer. Oh wow. And I feel like I mean, no, not like who the person oh, is really but no. like okay. who the person is. <laughs> but like <laughs> that that type. Yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. that, yeah. Is a dude. Is a dude for sure. Is a dude for sure.
0: Some of my favorite conversations go meta. I'm glad we included it because, like the talk, the conversation with Kate Briggs, we we spend quite a bit of time on the Benjamin Moser, Moser review.
2: Ugh. She, I remember her saying she had to lay lie down on the floor after that. She was yeah. just lying down on the floor.
0: That was but intense is, to talk about it.
2: Yeah, a lot of us who write first per person have gotten those just like devastating reviews, yeah. and I think it's. It's they're often written by men. They're not always.
0: Sheila Hetty, when we talked about motherhood, a lot of her really terrible reviews were by women. Yes. We went into that, which was so fascinating to talk about the way she was being infantilized in a certain way, like the threateningness of her book to some very intelligent female critics.
2: Well, I think there's this idea of doubt. Doubt is showing weakness and doubt is not performing your genius. You know and doubt is not performing like knowing everything in this and it's refusing of knowledge. to be
1: a guru it's refusing yes. that position yes. of like guru yeah. on the mountaintop which we absolutely yes. refuse completely on purpose yeah like it's not that yes. we failed to make it to the top of the mountain we're like yeah we, can, the we, could be. We, the no we could probably the top yeah. of the mountain
2: <laughs> right and it's like knowledge yeah. maybe knowledge could be something that's mutual and discussed it can be chatty it can be conversational it can be intimate. And that is, I think, the space of study as opposed to a I know more than you. It's a space yes. of thought. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to I know more than you, I'm going to perform this knowledge for you and I'm going to, you know, I always, I have this like theory that there's like work, like contemporary literature that, by people who did really well in debate. Although Sophia, I bet you would have done really well in debate, but
1: still. I never did debate, but maybe, okay, yes. who knows? People
2: who did debate, which is also a class thing, I think, right? Like people who did debate, like people who were so good at debating and performing knowledge. And that's what mostly, they become critics, usually oh. very brilliant critics, right? <laughs> this has never so occurred the critics to me. Love, the critics love the brilliant, the writers who perform this like knowledge, which is essentially pretty oppressive. I know I'm lecturing at you. I am a genius. And the critics are that. They went to the Ivy Leagues. They want an excuse to show their brilliance. So, someone has stuttering, like Susan Howe's stuttering eye. They're full of doubt. They admit vulnerability. They admit not knowing. They look at not knowing as an actual space of knowledge. That's very threatening, I think, to the American yeah. critic who's a product of the Ivy Leagues.
0: Mm. How would you guys feel about me leaving that last part in?
1: Sure. Fine with me. Okay. Because there
0: have been times when I've sort of let let it the tape. I mean, with permission, obviously, like Sheila Heti right after I ended up closing the show and I had this really funny back and forth about Jewish versus Christian storytelling that became like the best part of the interview for people. And it wasn't in the interview, but we just left it in as the outro music rolled
1: happens all the time that it, it's that's the chattiness that's
0: the yeah. like
2: the yeah, extra that after the after the, yeah.
1: after the interview yeah. is is
2: you know
4: sure
0: okay we'll leave it in
2: but also banu talks about confidence like banu like said about a study of confidence like why are some writers so confident right and have such this idea of confidence but i think you know it's the tradition it's a community feeling to say let's let's discuss together let's think with each other as opposed to, "I know everything, I am sovereign, I'm going to perform yeah this knowledge at you."
1: Yeah. In Opacities, in Opacities, that's coming out next year and talking about our relationship. I say at one point we exchanged confidences and confidence. Oh, so like wow. putting oh, those yeah. two things in the same space that you're you're exchanging confidences. You're being vulnerable with each other about your life. And you're also you're giving confidence to each other as well. Confidence that maybe you're not that you're that you're not being given in that's spaces right. outside of this community that you've this small space that you've created.
0: I love That's that right. so much. So, okay, great. Thank, thank you. you for doing right. this. David.
2: Thank you. Thank, thank you.
1: you so Bye, much. Sophia. Bye. Great to see you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, of course. Bye.
0: Today's program was recorded, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Nayman. You can find out more about Kate Zambrino's work at kzambrino.com and about Sophia Samitar's work at SophiaSamitar.com. For the Bonus Audio Archive, Kate and Sophia contribute a 40-minute call and response of readings talking to us about why they chose, what they read, and interweaving each other's readings into a beguiling whole. This joins many readings, craft talks, conversations with translators, and more, including from many people mentioned today, Dionne Brand, Christina Sharp, Manu Kapil, Elvia Wilk, and others. And every supporter... Can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards from the bonus audio archive to the Tin House Early Readership subscription getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. Find out more at patreon.com the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Oge in the book division. Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank past Between the Covers guest poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Ravens for making the intro and outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing her music, her film at aliciajoe.com. A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com.